Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. My dad is very wise, such just a lot of wisdom. I mean, he has a lot of insight that he shares with me, just things that blow my mind at times. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and just, just how they raised me and everything, it was, they really just normalized it and really giving me that, you know, how can I attitude? Because, you know, in that I had to figure out how I can do this. And so I think that was something that my dad like really helped me with and super grateful for today because, I mean, it's made all the difference and and not even just, you know, for me physically, but in my, you know, in business and, you know, self-development and just a lot of areas. I then asked myself, OK, well, how can I do this? And so it's transferred from, you know, physically, how can I do this to how can I, you know, in my emotions, in my career, in you know, my relationships? And so it's given me a, a figure it out mentality. A figure it out mentality. There may not be a better phrase to describe the mindset we need to overcome the crucibles we encounter on our journeys through life. That's what today's guest, Johannes Atlas, has discovered as he's navigated through life being born with a rare disability known as Poland's syndrome, which left him with physical abnormalities affecting his right hand that caused some emotional challenges he spent decades sorting out. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Johannes, he goes by Joe, explains to Warwick that he's found his footing thanks to the wisdom of mentors and the belief that, Poland syndrome or not, he is enough. It's a message he shares these days through his public speaking and his pressing toward the mark events. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate it. It's funny, you were telling us off air uh, just about the origin of your full name, Johannes. I want to just tell the listeners, because I think it's a pretty neat story about your dad and kind of his thinking. So, yeah, my dad, he named me Johannes. He actually comes from Johannesburg in South Africa, which uh, it, it translates to king. And so, yeah, he really liked the name. Mm. Uh, he actually wanted to name me Johannes Charleston Atlas. Uh, that was what would have been the full thing, but then my mom threw in Patrick, so it's Johannes Patrick Charleston Atlas. There you go. Wow, that yeah. is, uh, that's a name of royalty right there, young well, man. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I have a feeling, as we'll get into later, when you think of king, it probably has uh, more than one meaning, right? There's a spiritual meaning and <laughs> an right. earthly meaning. So that's, from uh, as a person of uh, faith, that's pretty cool to uh, have a, a reminder in your name, right? Every day, it's like, okay, <laughs> I know who my king is, right? <laughs> right, right. So that is so cool. So now, um, you grew up in California, did you? Yes, Southern um, California. Yeah, and, 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 right, and that's, are you you're there at the moment? Yes. In Cal okay, so yeah, just tell us a bit about uh, growing up, about your family and background, and yeah, just tell us a bit about Joe Atlas and you know, as you yeah. grew up. Uh, so like you said, uh, so I was born with Poland syndrome. So you could see the difference on my hand. For people who might just be listening, to give mm. you an idea, my right hand will literally fit in the palm of my left hand. Mm. So oh, one wow. thing that I'm grateful for uh, growing up in regards to my parents is that they never babied me. They never, you know, kind of gave me any special attention. They just treated me like normal. Uh, and on top of that, they, you know, I played a number of sports growing up. So I played baseball, basketball, football, tennis, Muay Thai. And in playing all these sports, it allowed me to figure it out. And that's mm -hmm. the thing I'm most grateful for. It was the mentality that it gave me is to figure it out. 
because there was, you know, certain things and not even just in sports, but there are just, you know, everyday life things that I, you know, wouldn't be able to do like, you know, everyday individuals would, I would have to figure it out in my own kind of way. And so I didn't really become conscious about my hand until about high school. And so, of course, you know, in high school, everybody wants to fit in and be cool. And so because I wanted to, you know, fit in and be cool, ideally, this thing wasn't cool to me. So, uh, so yeah, that's where I would, uh, I would hide my hand in my pocket. I mean, on a, a regular basis, unless I was doing something where I needed both of my hands, my hand was always in my pocket just to, to hide from the circumstances or from situations from being teased and being made fun of. I just hid my hand in my pocket all the time. And so the, in those moments was when I was when the baggage for me, my emotional baggage was really started unconsciously. I didn't really know that, you know, what was happening, but it wasn't until, you know, some years later, you know, I'll, I'll get into that. But uh, so after high school was when I would really want to I wanted to kind of get out of my comfort zone and really just grow as a person because I felt I was kind of feeling stuck a little bit. And I felt that, you know, me hiding my hand in my pocket, it was becoming a problem. And so uh, I got involved with this finance firm and it was, you know, though we taught about finance, it was more like a leadership and self-development course. And so super grateful for that as well. And within that, it was a lot of, you know, teaching you to believe in yourself. And so within that, you know, between that and, you know, I grew up in church and then at a certain point I started speaking at church as well was where I'd actually gotten the desire to want to become a motivational speaker. And so I remember the Sunday too, where, you know, just, uh, you know, during Sunday, excuse me, during church <laughs> on Sunday, there we go. Um, so you know how we have, there's altar call at the end of service. Mm-hmm. And so during altar call, it was, you know, breaking my heart to see Sunday after Sunday, people coming up and, you know, getting prayed for. But I mean, just some of the, just the most macho men coming up and, and crying and just to, to see them dealing with life was just, it hurt my heart. And it was in those moments where I was like, Lord, you know, we can do something and we need to do something about this because, you know, it's just not making sense why some of these things are going on. And so that was kind of where I really started, you know, wanting to become a motivational speaker. And I had from there, I started doing videos on Facebook and on Instagram and some on YouTube as well. And I had then in beginning of 2020, I'd actually started my first event. It was called Pressing Toward the Mark Conference. And it was, you know, right before COVID hit, perfect timing. <laughs> and then uh, I ended up going on tour with this guy named Andy Audate. I spoke in Texas and in uh, L.A. as well. And then it wasn't until May of last year that I had this experience with God where he kind of opened my eyes to my own baggage. And I was able to then free myself from, you know, the things that I was dealing with, you know, for over these over the you know past number of years. Hmm. Well, that's a remarkable story. So I just want to delve a bit into your parents and how they kind of raised you in a way that was probably so helpful, but just because I think most listeners and me included, until uh, we started speaking, I'd never heard of Poland syndrome. So how does it come about? I mean, it's, I'm assuming it's, you know, in the womb or it's some genetic thing, but for, for listeners who may not have heard of Poland syndrome, what is it? I mean, yeah, so it's characterized by the underdeveloped chest and arm muscles. It's all characterized on one side of the body. So it's all on my right side. So on top of my hand being smaller than my left, I don't have any chest muscle on the right side of my body. So there's no like cure for it. They don't know what causes it. It's not genetic. It's not like, you know, my mother was, you know, smoking or drinking anything, you know, nothing crazy in the womb. It's just, it's kind of like a freak thing. It just happens Every, and it's not longer. like it's hereditary. It's not like you can go back a few generations and there have been others in your family with it. It's just, 
so that it's something I it sounds like is fairly rare. And often when things are fairly rare, you know, they don't really understand what it is because there's right. so many things to focus on. So, um, as you were growing up, I mean, obviously you must have felt different than the other kids. How did that affect you? At, you know, I don't know, three, four, five, six at a young age. I mean, did you, were you obviously aware of it, but how did that affect you, you know, emotionally, physically, just in general? You know, it's funny because I remember there was just certain moments from like elementary school where I, I think it was on, on my part where I was trying to fit in with the wrong crowd mm-hmm. and I wasn't quite fitting in. And, you know, just, I got into a couple of fights in elementary school and just, not like getting teased and made fun of for my hand, but just for, I guess, in a sense for being different. It wasn't like directly correlated to my hand, but just being different in a sense. Um, and so it was in uh, elementary school is when I, I just realized this not too long ago, actually, was that was when I was really seeking that uh, that acceptance. And that was something that I couldn't seek in other people to give. I had to seek, I had to seek that for myself and give myself that acceptance that I was looking for. Uh, but yeah, no, it was just in, in elementary school uh, was kind of like where it started a little bit. But I, you know, then eventually as I started getting older, I found my crowd to kind of fit in with. And, you know, obviously not that many of our listeners will have Poland syndrome, but, you know, it's inevitable, <laughs> you know, when you're in elementary school, kids always want to fit in and kids can be mean anybody that's different, you know, they look different, they're from a different part of the country, maybe they've moved, anybody that's different gets teased. I don't know what it is. I think you could go to any culture at any age at any time. And it's just, I don't know, from a spiritual perspective, I guess you could say the fallen nature of humans, but it's so sad that anybody that's different will get teased. I mean, I'm probably, you've seen it in others and, you know, whether it's you know, your skin color is different. Maybe you're not as athletic or, you know, you're a bookworm or you're, I don't know what, you know, you're quiet or whatever it is. Anybody that's different gets teased. I mean, you've probably obviously seen that, but um, I mean, it's pretty sad. It's, it's, you would think the kids would give each other a break, but right. not always. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird part of human nature. And it's like, it's not until, you know, sometime after high school uh, or sometime after, you know, grade school that, you know, we really, start to come together more as a unit and, and people, you know, the, the teasing kind of really stops, I guess it's more of, you know, like kid stuff, but typically not all the time, but typically, I guess, you know, it's when we get older than it, then the, we come become more unified at that point. You know, I want to kind of talk a little about what you said about your parents, not babying you. And, um, you know, that's probably in hindsight was a remarkable gift because a lot of parents would have like, Oh, we're so sorry, Joe, this is awful. And we're going to, put you and, you know, we're just going to baby you. We're going to protect you and put our arms around you. And we're going to make you safe from the world, which is a noble goal, but not always maybe wouldn't serve you. So talk about your parents' attitude and in a sense, if it was the blessing that it was in terms Mm -hmm. of how they handled all that. Yeah. So just as you were saying, yeah, you know, my, my parents, they never, just like you were saying, they never babied me. It was, it was, the thing was, it was never really a huge topic of conversation, but one there was one thing that I, you know, when I was little, I would kind of put my hand up like a chicken wing. So, I'll, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like put it up like so, this. Yeah. And so my dad would tell me all the time, Hey, put your hand down. Cause I would just yeah. for no reason, just for no reason, <laughs> just be my hand up. Right, and so right. he, you know, trained me in that to, you know, kind of put my hand down. 
within that, them allowing me to play sports. And then, you know, then my dad also kind of helping me with that a little bit to help me figure out, you know, how am I going to do this? Because when I played baseball, I would catch and throw with my left hand. So I would, you know, catch the ball or have the glove on my left hand, catch the ball, take it off, grab the ball and then throw it really. It was a quick little exchange. But so just like little things like that, he kind of helped me figure it out. For most people, that wouldn't be easy. I mean, I grew up in Australia, so we kind of play cricket. So uh, maybe you would have been better off there because uh, there's no gloves unless you're the wicket keeper. So, you know, you would have been... uh, at least in fielding, would have been fine. But um, well, yeah. and there was a professional baseball player, Jim Abbott, who had the same. I mean, it wasn't yeah. Poland syndrome, but yeah. he did the same thing: caught with a glove, took it off, and threw it. And he threw a no hitter, you know, with that circumstance. So he was a. It is a triumph of uh, the will to be able to pull that stuff off. And I would imagine Joe that doing that, the confidence that gave you, right from little league on each step you took that helped build confidence and help you overcome some of those hidden doubts about yourself yeah no it definitely did because it just like you're saying it it gave me that hey i can do this and when you know and and me having to figure it out and let me know hey you can do this you can figure it out if you you know if you're willing to so yeah no it definitely did and that's really remarkable because your dad could have said you know what joe Forget baseball, uh, you know, um, any kind of football, forget anything like that. You can't do it. You know, just accept your limitations. Some parents, maybe a lot would have said that, but he's like, okay, no, don't think of yourself as limited. We just have to adapt, you know, be smart. And um, that's so good. I mean, I think of an earlier era with polio, like, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt had polio. There was a time in which in up through the 50s, if you had polio, it was meant to be a shameful thing. You would stay home, don't go out. Somehow they were like almost blamed for it, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but I like to think we're a bit more enlightened now. So the way your parents handled it was so wise. It's just, again, don't think of yourself as even challenged. Just, okay, yeah, there are some challenges, but well, let's figure out how to adapt. And that's a big lesson I'm sure you probably share with other people. We all have limitations, some a bit more obvious than others. Uh, but, you know, just figure out a way around it. And that was so, I mean, your parents set you up for success and not all parents do that, but I don't know. I mean, as you look back, do you feel like, boy, the wisdom that they had is truly remarkable in terms of, you know, how they really tried to help you? Yeah, no, I definitely do, especially in regards to my dad, because we we grew up in church. My dad was a a minister. And so he's, my dad is very wise, such just, a lot of wisdom. I mean, he has a lot of insight that he shares with me, just things that blow my mind at times. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, and just just how they raised me and everything, it was, they really just normalized it and really giving me that, you know, how can I attitude? Because, you know, in that I had to figure it out how I can do this. And so I think that was something that my dad like really helped me with and super grateful for today because, I mean, it's made all the difference and, and not even just you know, for me physically, but in my, you know, in business and, you know, self-development and just a lot of areas, I then ask myself, okay, well, how can I do this? Mm. And so it's transferred from, you know, physically, how can I do this to how can I, you know, in my emotions, in my career, in, you know, my relationships. And so it's given me a, a figure it out mentality. That's awesome. So you mentioned your dad was somebody that went to church and faith was important. So what role did that play in your family and you, as you were, you know, dealing with challenges and growing up, how did that all weave itself in the spiritual side? Uh, having that spiritual advisory, you know, growing up, because I was, you know, 
born and raised in church. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, just a lot of the, you know, just hearing stuff Sunday after Sunday, uh, you know, as a, especially as a kid, you know, I didn't really, you know, know what was, what was really going on. I didn't really understand what was everything that was going on. But as I got older, you know, I'd, uh, it was after high school when I got my first job, I had, you know, quit, uh, quit going to church because I started working Sundays. And so then those next few years was when I really started, you know, my heathen backslide. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but then after a number of years, I really felt that pull to come back. Like I, I felt it in my heart and I wanted to go back. You know, my parents, they weren't, you know, hey, you need to go back to church. You need to get back. And, you know, it was nothing like that, but I wanted to. And so then, you know, kind of going, you know, getting back into church. But even with that, you know, kind of growing up, you know, I've been in a sense, like a voice of reason for a lot of my friends growing up, you know, kind of helping them, you know, with a number of things. I remember in again, in elementary school, actually, where I had the thought that I wanted to be a counselor uh, just because I would, you know, help my friends a lot with, you know, stuff that they're going through and kind of things like that. You use apparently a phrase that you were maybe when you're seven or eight, you were the playground mediator. So talk about well, what did that look like? You're on the playground, people are having fights or teasing each other. What did that look like for you being the playground mediator? You know, it was it was kind of cool. Uh, just helping my friends, you know, when, you know, dealing with some of the problems that they were dealing with, whether it be, you know, personal or at home or, you know, between, you know, some of their friends, you know, I'd kind of help them bring resolution to it all and whatever that they were dealing with to, you know, yeah, hey, you know, it's not that serious, guys. You know, let's just, you know, have fun and be friends. You know, we all came here to have a good time and, you know, just kind of bring the the, the level of aggravation down a, lo- a lot. Was, it was fun. It was definitely rewarding, I'll say that. And that's also remarkable because, again, you could have been internally focused and, you know, feeling sorry for yourself, which would be completely understandable. But it sounds like you weren't focused or obsessed with yourself you were focused on others, even in early age, which is truly remarkable. And I think too many kids your age, you know, seven or eight would have been thinking, hey, you know, hey guys, you know, we don't need to kind of fight here and thinking of others. So as you look back, do you feel like that's, I want to say not normal to be focused on others as much as you did, but sounds like you did. I think I can definitely attribute that to growing up in church, you know, because the, you know, for the greatest commandments in the Bible, you know, love God with your everything. Second mm-hmm. is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, and just not being so focused on me all the time, you know, I just always just, you know, Hey, how, what can I, how can I help? What can I do? Uh, just having that servant leaders part was uh, something that, you know, again, growing up in church, I'm super grateful for. Well, and that shows a tremendous degree of, of empathy. And, you know, one of the things I'm sure you probably talk about this, it's easy to wallow in our own challenges. Sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes, no fault of ours at all. But either way, it's it's easy to feel sorry for yourself. And as understandable as that is, it sometimes is know, more healing or more rewarding when you're focusing on trying to help others. And it sounds like you've done that your whole life. So just for listeners who may have other challenges, talk about how focusing on others, you know, in some ways is sort of healing or at least why is that the way to go? I know, obviously, the Bible talks about that, which you know we agree on. But why is that helpful? Rather than being obsessed with your own challenges and problems, why is that really a better way to go of focusing on others and trying to help them? I feel like when it comes to helping others, in helping others, we really you know help ourselves because so we are a spirit, and the Bible says this. The Bible says that there is one spirit. 
And so we all have the spirit of God within us, you know, whether we, you know, whether you know or believe that or not, everybody has the same spirit. And so it's like when I go to, you know, counsel somebody, I'm secretly kind of counseling myself as well. Uh, and just helping, you know, somebody deal with whatever they might be dealing with. But in helping somebody, you know, through a challenge, through some kind of struggle, it also simultaneously helps to minimize what I'm going through. Not in the sense that saying that, you know, what I'm going through is not a big deal, but it takes the pressure off of me and, you know, helping to focus on somebody else, but also to realize that, hey, what I'm dealing with, it's not as big as I think it is, or it's not as great as I feel it is, or though, you know, hey, you know, it may be a big deal, but if I'm, you know, helping somebody else to go through what they're going through, I know that I can make it through what I'm going through. If I'm able to help somebody else while I'm still struggling or, you know, whatever the case is, but mm -hmm. in just helping others, it does such a tremendous work in us. While we don't even realize it may be doing a work in us, but it's, it's subconsciously and secretly doing a great work in you when we take the time to help somebody else though we may be struggling. I think that's so true. It's also empowering because when you're not focused on your limitations and you're focused on helping others, it's probably empowering. It's like, well, look what I can do. Yes, I can do baseball and other things, but I'm impacting people's lives. I mean, look at the impact I'm having. It probably makes you feel maybe a little less challenged and a little bit more empowered and capable of look, you know, you can say obviously God through you, which I think we would agree with, but look what I can do. Look at the change I can make in my world. Right. I mean, that's an empowering, uplifting and energizing concept. I mean, and I'll jump in here, Warwick, because what you just said reminds me of something you've said about your own crucible. When you said, Hey, I can do something. I remember you talking about that job that you got at the aviation services mm -hmm. company and it wasn't, you know, you weren't leading a multi-billion dollar company, but you came to a point where you said, I can do this after feeling like after the failure of the takeover that there wasn't much you could do, you found that success. And it's remarkable, listener, catch this. Warwick's Crucible and Joe's Crucible are extraordinarily different, but the emotions that they've expressed about hey, I can do something, that was powerful. Wasn't that powerful for you, Warwick? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously always a challenge comparing Crucible because I feel like what I went through is like nothing compared to Joe and his situation um, in terms of the challenge. But yeah, I mean, more generally, yeah, I mean, there was a time in which, you know, lost a 150-year-old family business founded by a strong person of faith in my family for generations and uh, it fell under my watch. Yeah, I was feeling pretty bad about myself and everything I touched, you know, I just destroy and, you know, maybe I should just go away and hide and maybe I won't, you know, hurt people. Or, I mean, I don't know if it was quite that graphic, maybe a little bit, but, you know, little bit by little bit as you do things and you're not screwing up and you actually can help people or do something positive, it's like, well, I call it a drop of grace. It's a little drop of grace like a, in, a little drop of water in the desert. It's like, wow, I can do that. And little bit by little bit, you, you, know, you connect enough drops of grace and you got a pool and I don't, I don't know about an ocean, but maybe like a big pond, <laughs> you know, maybe even a little lake. Right. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, I've found it very helpful. It's not every once in a while I'll read something or, you know, somebody writes some article and it's like, oh yeah, that's right, that was me. Uh, yeah, but um it is true. I mean, in my own very different way, as you're focused on others, it is 
it is so empowering. So, you know, talk about sort of high school, uh, you know, teased a bit, but it sounds like you got through that. I mean, how'd you get through the whole high school thing? Sounds like, was that like the pinnacle of teasing, if you will, or gee, I'm different? Yeah, that, that really was it. And it was then that, you know, how I kind of, you know, dealt with it was I was just, my hand was just, I mean, consistently, my hand was always, always, oh, my hand was always in my pocket. Unless right. unless I was doing something where I needed both my hands. It was just, my hand right. was always in my pocket. But yeah, and, and that, honestly, that also kind of carried over until when I got out of, even though I got out of high school, uh, it wasn't until that I got involved with the uh, Riverside Chamber of Commerce where, you know, that was a position where I was, I was like really nervous to get into because, you know, and being, you know, involved with business, business one-on-one, you look somebody in the eye and you give them a firm handshake. And that was the thing that I was really nervous about was because I didn't want to be reminded of the reactions and the faces that I would get when I would go to shake somebody's hand, whether, you know, be pulled back or, you know, they would like shake my hand and freak out or, you know, just various things. And so and, was, and, and that's a challenge for that. because in our culture, we tend to shake hands with our right hand. Now, obviously, some people are left handed, but the majority, I don't know what the percentage is, the majority are right handed. So culturally, you leave with your right hand. Right. You know, I never really thought about it until now. But even if you're shaking a left-handed person's hand, my guess is they'll still stick out their right hand because, <laughs> you know, why just make life difficult? You know, because it's just, <laughs> right. you know, they just say, oh, well, here we go again. But that's got to be, yeah, um, that had to have been, because then people feel awkward, right? And they're like, uh, you know, and exactly, which, you know, even if you weren't feeling awkward, you are going to feel awkward once they feel awkward. You know, so it's, it's like it's, it's funny you say that too because I've tried to shake with my left hand a few times and and exactly that it was an awkward moment at that point. So yeah, yeah. Well, at least during COVID, in one of the small blessings there, you know, the whole uh, you know elbow bump. It's like okay, <laughs> you know, I can do that. I can do an elbow bump. So nobody's right. shaking hands these days. Um, but uh, so it's uh, speaking of that metaphor of drops of grace. It sounds like that Riverside Chamber of Commerce. That was somewhat of a significant step for you in your yes. outlook and your feeling that you can contribute. So talk about how that really helped change your thinking or grow your thinking a bit. Yeah. So in doing that, because it's, you know, Riverside, like I say, Riverside Chamber of Commerce, where I'm in a room with uh, you know a lot of a bunch of business owners and we're all just talking and connecting and networking. And so, you know, it's a lot of obviously a lot of shaking hands. Mm-hmm. And so in just doing that, I was like, I, said, I was, I was literally nervous to do it because I, right. I did not, I did not want to be reminded. But at that point, I was really wanting to get out of my comfort zone. And so I got into it anyways. And so, you know, I started shaking people's hand. And, you know, some people noticed and, you know, other people did not And it, you know, it was a big, it was, it wasn't really a big deal. And it was kind of within that in just the habitual shaking of hands that I started to I learned to begin to get over it a little bit, even after, you know, being involved with the com- with the Chamber of Commerce, there was still a little bit part of me that wasn't until, you know, about eight, nine months ago that, you know, I really kind of got over it, but it was, there's still a little bit of part of me that kind of still stuck, uh, that still held on to that, that, that ill feeling I had toward it. You know, I don't know if you felt this, but there's this concept where if you seem to be over it and not awkward or embarrassed by it, somehow it helps other people not be embarrassed by it. Or feel awkward have you felt that with other people like if you're like hey this is cool it's okay that you know it's easy for other people to relax and not worry about it have you found that yeah you know sometimes like i'll just i'll make little jokes about it and and it does kind of help ease some people's tension about it a little bit 
or, you know, they'll, you know, go to shake my hand and they're like, oh, you know, they'll, you know, make a comment and I'll, you know, make a comment, you know, say something funny and just to, yeah, there's a, it's, I have noticed that. And it's, yeah, you're right. It, it does. It, when, when I, and it's only when I've made it a big deal that it's been a big deal to people. Right. And when I don't make it a big deal, then it's not a big deal to people. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how that works out, but yeah. It's an important lesson. So what was the role of being an ambassador at the Riverside Chamber of Commerce? What did that involve? Uh, so in being an ambassador, we were pretty much just helping new businesses coming in uh, to the community and kind of pretty much get situated, come in and, you know, network. How can we help you and what ways can we assist them at that point? You know, invite them out to different events that we had pretty much getting because we would have events from time to time. And it was pretty much kind of getting as much people as possible to come out and, uh, you know, network and talk about their business. And because and, Riverside, it's a big uh, business city as far as, you know, uh, it's like small businesses. Uh-huh. And so it was a lot of, you know, just pretty much getting the community to build, uh, build itself. And I imagine you had all sorts of different businesses, maybe people from different cultures, different backgrounds. Um, so talk about how that felt like helping a lot of very different people, because I'm guessing it was, you know, a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds. So how did that feel helping those folks? Yeah, when, when I was involved, I was a little bit more on the back end of it. I didn't really get to the front to see, you know, all the, you know, okay. all the different businesses okay. and whatnot. But no, it was rewarding in a sense to, you know, see the different businesses and people come out and network and, and, you know, come back and talk about it a little bit later where, you know, some people would come back to our meeting that we had every week and uh, they would, you know, say, you know, how much some of the, the events that they've came to made a difference and some of the networks and connections that they made at that point. Okay. So... Talk a bit about what you do now with um, kind of pressing towards uh, the mark and um, yeah, just sort of the things, uh, the things you do now. Yeah. So with uh, pressing toward the mark conference, that was actually a God given idea. I remember I was driving home and then just God dropped the idea in my mind was like, Hey, you know, have your own, you know, have an event at, you know, the um, have an event. And he's like, call it pressing toward the mark. And I'm like, Lord, that's dope. I love it. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was, so I, I really had no idea, you know, how it was going to work or anything, but, you know, God told me to do it. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. And so I just, you know, started getting, you know, getting everything going. I found the venue you know, I started marketing and finding people to, you know, come to the event. Um, but that was like, uh, like I said, that was my first event. And so with pressing toward the mark, it was really just about, uh, you know, pressing toward your goal, whatever, you know, goal you have in mind, whatever it is that you want out of life, it's pressing toward that and making sure that, you know, you achieve what you want, because, you know, this, you know, we only have one lifetime. And so it's like, you know, might as well, you know, get what you want out of this life. And so what are some of the keys from your perspective about pressing towards the mark? How do people do that? What's sort of some of your key philosophies there? In pressing toward the mark, uh, one of them was to, you know, you have to really believe in yourself and, you know, between believing yourself, having mentorship and growing uh, was were my key points uh, in that. So like with believing in yourself, you know, the, the Bible says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so if you can't, if you don't have the belief in yourself, if you, you know, think lowly of yourself, you know, that's something that we have to become aware of and, and heal from that in that sense to be able to believe in ourselves so that so we can achieve what it is what it is that we're looking to achieve at that point. And then having mentorship, you know, it's at that point, I had my mentor there as well. And so I pointed that out to the audience, 
you know, to have people to come in and, and help to, you know, give you po uh, positive criticism or, you know, to help direct you, you know, what could you have done better? What could you have done different? And, and things of that sort to, you know, better guide you down the route that you're going. And then, you know, growing, growing as a person is, is a, you know, the other huge part of that is because, you know, we're never, we can't excel past who we are. And so we have to grow to the point of, you know, what it is that we're looking to, where it is that we're looking to grow towards, what it is that the goal that we're looking to achieve. We can't grow past that or we can't move past that unless we grow to who that person is. And in the thinking, in the mind of that person, who it is that you're wanting to be, you have to become that. Hmm. You said a couple of very important things, just uh, the importance of mentors. Sometimes we have this attitude, you know, I don't need help. I can do it all myself. But you know, it's amazing. You've probably found when you've asked, there are probably people that actually are happy to help you, that want to help. Sometimes we think, oh, nobody cares. Nobody wants to help. But if you found your own experience when maybe you've asked, people have come alongside, that you have found people that actually want to help you get to where you want to go. Has that been your experience? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, once you just start talking about, you know, what it is that you're wanting to do and your mission, your goal, People, yeah, a lot of people are very willing to help, but I think uh, simultaneously with, I'll say with me in the beginning, when I first gotten started into it and I would have conversations with people, there was still that part of me that didn't necessarily believe in myself. So mm -hmm. my baggage for me was that I'm not enough. What, what I ended up making my hand mean about me was that I'm not enough. And so when opportunities, when that's one way how it affected me, when our certain opportunities would come around, because I had that belief about myself was that I'm not enough, I messed up certain opportunities. But, but yeah, a lot of people are, are definitely willing to help, so, you know, willing to. Yeah. So how did you overcome that concept of I'm not enough? Because some of us are internal, but you have a, a phys daily physical reminder that if you choose to go that way, you can say, you can look down and okay, I'm not enough. I mean, how did you overcome that concept? Because if you hadn't overcome that concept, life would have been very different for you. How'd you get past that? So, you know, this was, it was a moment. It was literally in a moment that, that mm. this happened. So uh, sometime like, it was in uh, last May, uh, I was praying because at a certain point in my life, I was just, at this point in my life, I was just I was really just kind of feeling stuck in a sense. I was wanting to grow, but you know, I wasn't sure, you know, what was going on. And so I prayed, I'm like, Lord, open my eyes up to me beyond the limitations of my understanding. And so, because at that point I was ready for the answer. It was within about a week and a half to two weeks I got it answered that prayer. And so I remember I was, you know, standing right here in my room and I'm, uh, you know, God had opened my eyes up to a moment back into high school uh, when I, there was moments when I would get teased and I got made fun of that he opened my eyes up to that moment. And it was in those moments that I took on that identity of I'm not enough. So those were the moments of my, in a sense, my trauma uh, that I had then made it mean about me that I'm not enough. But when you look at the moment, like none of that means that I'm not enough. None of that means that when I really look at the moment from like a camera's point of view, nothing in that situation means I'm not enough, but that's just the identity I, t I then attached onto it. So once I, uh, once got to open my eyes up to that, I then at that point just affirmed the opposite. And I told myself, I am enough. Like who I am as a person, I am enough. And really just in, in saying that, I had to really feel that, really emotionalize that. And from that point moving forward there, I had to keep in mind too, because there are certain moments that, you know, moving forward that would trigger that feeling of I'm not enough. But then when they would come about, I would catch it 
and I would affirm that I am enough. And it's just a consistent thing of, hey, no, Johannes, you are enough. You know, Joe, what you're saying is so profound because every human being are going to have days when they think, you know what, I'm not enough. I'm worthless. Um, you may not say it out loud, but inside, you know, it's hardly human that hasn't had that thought once in a while, maybe often. And so being able to affirm, no, I am enough, you have a spiritual foundation. Obviously, you know, I think of Psalm 139 that says, I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. And it's hard to say, I mean, really? But from God's perspective, everything happens for a reason. And he all makes us different. You know, we look different. We have different background skills. But in his eyes, we are all perfectly made, which sounds a strange thing to say. But biblically, that's what it says, right? Right. And so if you think you're enough and God says you're enough, what more do you need, right? You and God together, it's not a bad team, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that's important. Whatever people's spiritual beliefs, I think, you know, just that concept that you are enough, you just have to own that concept. Whatever your anchor is, it might be a different faith or a different philosophy of spirituality, you know, it's got to, unless you start with believing that you are enough, you can't really do anything. That's the rock in which you've got to found your ability to contribute to the world and move forward. So, um, so that sounds like that was huge. You've had mentors. What are some other aspects of really uh, helping people press towards the mark and achieve their goals? I mean, how do people grow uh, beyond that? I would say it it does vary person by person. I mean, a lot of it is it starts with awareness and you have to be self-aware and seeing, you know, being aware of, you know, who you are as a person, being aware of your strengths and your weaknesses, you know, the things that you struggle in and in being aware of that, just notice it's, it firstly starts with just noticing where, you know, the struggle is. And when you notice it, hey, you know, it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just what is. Mm-hmm. And so then at that point, you know, you then have to have the desire to or have to. Yeah, you have to have the desire to want to grow at that point, because some people, you know, we just it's easy as for us as human beings just to kind of stay where we are, to stay in our comfort zone. But it's like you have to have the desire to really want to grow and get out of our comfort zone. And so at that point, you know, once you become, you start becoming, you know, aware of it, you know, for me, you know, hey, I noticed that I was, you know, I struggle getting out of bed out of uh, bed in the morning. You know, I struggle with my, with, I procrastinate a lot. I, you know, struggle with my discipline, you know, notice those areas where, you know, the areas of struggle and then become aware of it. And in becoming aware of it, then you start to start working on doing something about it. Sometimes just take little baby steps. Sometimes just, you know, hey, you know, if I struggle getting out of bed in the morning, then, you know, let me put my alarm clock across the room or let me, you know, do, just find like one little step, just kind of take little baby steps instead of, you know, trying to conquer the whole mountain that, you know, at the first step. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we talk about in Crucible Leadership we, um, is small wins. I mean, I'm not somebody by nature that moves a million miles an hour. I'm a sort of thoughtful person, which can be good. But, you know, so sometimes the mountain can seem overwhelming, but it's like if I look back, okay, what did I accomplish today? Okay, I did this, this, and that. Okay, if you connect enough small wins, it ends up being a big win. But, you know, rather than saying, oh, that's impossible, I'll never, like in your case, be a motivational speaker, I'll never do this and that. Okay, what's a small win? What's Maybe I can talk to somebody, maybe I can prepare, maybe I can practice with friends and neighbors. I mean, there's probably a series of small steps you've taken to get to your goal, right? You know, 
rather than saying, okay, gee, I don't know if I'll be able to speak at, I don't know, Staples Center or something in LA or some, you know, some massive auditorium. And see, that feels a little far away. Okay, well, maybe one day, but let's start a little, little smaller. Maybe there's someplace locally. Do you know what I mean? Like right. sometimes you can set the bar so high that unless you do that today, uh, then I'll, I fail. Well, okay, just small step at a time, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And that's something that I've really been kind of attaching onto more and more. And I have it written at, written at the top of my whiteboard here, just 1% every day. So just a 1% gain every day. And at the end of the year, you've grown 365%. That is a fantastic word. And I will take my one small step as the co-host of the show <laughs> to say that I think that I also heard the captain turn on the fasten seatbelt sign. And it's getting to the point that we're going to be moving toward landing the plane Joe, before uh, we do that, and Warwick asks you, a, you know, another question or two, are there places in social media that folks can find you? One of the things I thought fascinating about your story, and it went by really quickly, but you mentioned that you sort of got your start in reaching out and helping people manage those things that kind of torment them, those things that challenge them by using YouTube videos. And that is a fascinating uh, way to leverage that technology to live a life of significance. But how can people, if they want to know more about Joe Atlas and your speaking and, and your conferences, how can they find you? Yeah, so I'm, uh, right now I'm working on a website uh, that'll be up pretty soon here. It's joeatlasspeaks.com. It's not up yet, but when it does come up, uh, Facebook, uh, you can look up my business page. It's speaking to the U in you. That's uh, the name of my company. And then on Instagram, it's J-O underscore speaks. So uh, I know one of the things you talk about is, um, and this has been your whole life, is not letting crucibles, not letting challenges define you. For those people that may be listening right now and they're going through a crucible, it could be physical, personal, a marriage breakup, a death of a loved one, uh, getting fired. I mean, how do you avoid letting your crucibles, letting your challenges define you? What's the way out? I would say that, you know, whatever the situation was, whatever your crucible was, however, you know, it made you feel you are completely valid for how you feel. I want, that's first and foremost, I want people to know that you're completely valid for how you feel. But now looking at it, knowing what you know now, do you want to continue to feel that way? And that's a big thing that people sometimes, we as people have to take the time to answer, do we want to continue to feel that way? And then if not, you know, then what is it that I wanna do moving forward? But wherever that area that brings us the most hurt or trauma, wherever the area of our struggle is, we have to work to bring resolution to that area so that we can move forward in what we're dealing with. That, I have been in the communication business long enough, gentlemen, to know when the last word on a subject is spoken. And Mr. Joe Atlas, you spoke the perfect last word in our conversation for today. Well, so I'm going to do what, uh, I mean, there's a lot. I've pulled three takeaways I think listeners can take from our conversation. Uh, there's a lot more than that, but the three that sort of leapt off to me and Joe, I got to tell you, I do this in every episode and it took exactly 45 seconds of you speaking when I wrote down number one. So you're the fastest person to the finish line on a takeaway that I've done yet. But awesome. <laughs> takeaway one from this conversation, listener, I think is this. Take the time in the midst of your crucible to, as Joe did, figure it out. 
there's no timer on moving beyond your crucible in most cases. It's not like an action movie where the hero has to defuse a bomb before the numbers on the dial get to double zeros. You can press into the pain, face the challenges, look at the lessons you're being taught, and then apply them as you press ahead at your pace. Second takeaway, believe you can bounce back. Truly believe that. We hear the word mindset a lot these days. It's a popular term. And as Joe put it, he built a figure-it-out mentality in navigating life with his physical challenge. He was encouraged by his parents that there was no limitation he could not conquer. You find that encouragement in your own crucible. It might be your parents, your spouse, your friends, whoever it is, find a person or people who give you support that you need to conquer your crucible. And then the third point, give to others, become a mentor, help them with the challenges they face, talk to them about their emotions, help them articulate and pursue their goals. Again, as Joe put it, funny, all three of these points I say, as Joe put it, as Joe put it, help them press toward the mark, help them understand that they are enough. Listeners, thank you for spending this time with us on Beyond the Crucible. Warwick and I have a little favor to ask you. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you um, uh, got some insight, some hope and encouragement from it, we ask that you would um, click subscribe on the app on which you're listening to the show. Uh, We also ask that you drop by and leave us a, a rating. The more ratings and subscriptions we get, the more people we can bring these insights like Joe Atlas has shared with us today to more folks. And until that next time that we are together, please remember this. Your crucible experiences are painful. Joe described some very, you know, painful traumatic situations. He did it with a, some lilt in his voice, but the pain was real of what he experienced. But the beauty of that, it was not the end of his story. It was just the start of his story. And it can be the start of your story, your crucible can be, if you learn the lessons of them, if you apply some of the lessons we talked about here. And the reason uh, that it can be the start of your story is that it brings you to a place. You learn those lessons, you leverage those lessons to a place that allows you to pursue a new story that can be the most rewarding one of your life. And it is rewarding because, as it is done for Joe, as it is done for Warwick, it leads, at the end of the day, to a life of significance.